0: sentire media hello everyone and welcome to a history of italy episode 56 communal growing pains an english pope and barbarossa on the scene Here we are, finally back with a regular episode. I can't really promise that we'll be fully back on track from now on, and there'll be maybe a couple of ups and downs, stops and goes, but hopefully we're getting back in the right direction. Also, I'm working on a couple of little surprises with some of my favourite fellow podcasters, so listen out for those as well. I hope I haven't abandoned you for too long and I'm quite sure you'll find other summary things to do anyway. We had left off in the middle of the 12th century. Last time, we saw how Pope Eugene III had been forced to flee Rome due to his opposition to the communal authority represented by the Senate, and in an attempt to regain some prestige, he had called for the second crusade which had been a PR disaster for him and one of the main contenders Holy Roman Emperor Conrad. Meanwhile life in the internal city continued now with the charismatic figure of Arnaldo da Brescia as the spiritual leader of the commune. Speaking of communes in general, how were they doing at this time? Well we have seen that we cannot really pinpoint a starting period for all of the communes in Italy. Indeed, signs of growing independence can be traced back centuries before the time we are talking about, which is the 1140s. However, we did find a compromise to indicate the starting point for the communes in the election of the first city consuls, elected from and by the prominent families of the city both noble and the new and upcoming merchant class this means that many communes were by now about half a century into their experience this was enough time for them to realize that perhaps some changes needed to be implemented after all there was no manual in circulation entitled how to run a commune it was always sort of trial and error they started off with the idea of the consul chosen among the maiores, the important citizens of the city. They would not supplant the existing ruling class, i.e. the bishops and the nobles, but in time they would gain increasing power and influence, and the old establishment had to get with the programme. As things went on, the communes found that the consuls still meant a lot of factional fighting and rivalry. So, the idea of a single administrator started to gain ground. This was no move back to hereditary noble power. The head leader or magistrate remained an elected position. As in the case with many aspects in Italy, this didn't happen in a linear way and all over at the same time. Indeed, in many cases, It was a temporary situation before going back to the consuls. At first, no one even was sure what to call the new figure. So, for example, in 1151, in Siena, we could find that there was the mention of a Dominus Civitatis. In Bologna, between 1151 and 1154, we find a Rector et Podestas. And in Arezzo rector et Gubernator, similar to the modern day English word governor at first this new figure didn't actually govern alone but as the first among equals such as in the primus consul or magister consulum in Pisa, Genoa or Padua in time this administrative figure would come to be known as the podista The need for this new form of organisation came not only from the desire to overcome factional struggles, but also from the need to have someone who could dedicate their full time and attention to the business of administration. So, we will soon see the rise of the professional Podesta. And as our 12th century draws to a close, we will increasingly see cases of Podesta from outside of the city, as an attempt to reach a higher level of impartiality. These men would therefore travel from city to city when their time was up, anywhere from one year on, once they had completed one term and their nomination in a new city had been approved by the city assembly. As administration became more and more complicated and the Podesta became an executive, legislative and military position they would bring their staff with them, and since they would have to pay them, the price for a good Podesta was quite high. With this, we mustn't think that the Podesta had absolute power. He would still have to respect the wishes of the city representatives and the city statute. The change in admin was not the only novelty. the communal scene indeed it is in this period that the societates came to be formed and gained increasing power perhaps the most immediate comparison for these groups could be the guilds there were groups of professionals in different sectors that would band together to defend the interest of that particular professional trade they had their own internal governing bodies and statutes and in time they grew in power, managing to rival that of the existing noble and consular merchant class, adding yet another layer of possible contention to the already violent cities. A precocious city in this sense was Bologna, where to this day you can still find streets and areas dedicated to the professions that made up the first example of societates. That was what was going on in the communal reality in general and will be as we go forward. So as we go back to general politics and kings and battles keep in mind that this was the situation developing in the communes. Now let's get back to Rome. In 1145, back before the disaster of the Second Crusade Pope Eugene managed to reach an agreement with the Roman Senate and re-entered the city this held for a whole of a couple of months before the Pope clashed once again and left again for Viterbo and stayed there for a couple of years meanwhile the Roman Senate tried offering the imperial crown to Conrad in the name of the city and not the Pope Conrad hesitated for a while but finally decided he might actually make his way down. So, in 1152, he got all ready, prepared his expedition, and then died. So, he couldn't really hope to lead the expedition. Conrad had no direct heirs, so the throne of the Kingdom of Germany which implied the crown of the kingdom of Italy and the Holy Roman Empire, came to a young man who at the time would have been in his early thirties. He was of medium height, a bit robust though not fat. He had blue eyes, long delicate fingers and very white teeth. He had curly red hair and a characteristic red beard that earned him his nickname. Would you believe it? Redbeard, in Italian Barbarossa. His name was Frederick. His succession to the throne came about pretty smoothly. Indeed, Frederick Barbarossa was from the house of Hohenstaufen of Swabia, and so a Ghibelline, but his mother was Judith of Bavaria, a Guelph. Thus a temporary unity of the two factions came about. If you add to this the extra compromise with the other contender for the throne, Henry the Lion, things were all squared, fine and dandy. The Roman Senate fell over itself in an attempt to be the first to invite the new King of Germany down to Rome to be crowned Emperor, with a letter oozing with rhetoric, most probably written by the moral leader of the Roman Commune, Arnaldo da Brescia. Frederick did indeed make his way down. However, he made it very clear that he was coming to be crowned by the Pope and was having none of this new-fangled rule-your-own-city business. He didn't exactly rush down. He took his time, getting ready, and on his way down, made a bit of a stop-off. He made a stop off in Northern Italy, because the city of Milan had been a bit naughty. They hadn't been paying the required tribute to the King of Germany, who was also the King of Northern Italy and Holy Roman Emperor. They weren't doing a good job taking care of their roads and bridges, and were refusing hospitality to the German representatives. Worst of all, they were being really big bullies to the little staunchly pro-imperial town of Lodi, an important market town just southeast of the greater city. In March of 1153, the citizens of Lodi sent three ambassadors to Frederick to report the Milanese. Barbarossa sent down a representative who was made fun of, and I'm sure the ferocity of the Milanese taunting caught him completely by surprise. They even roughed him up a bit, forcing him to flee back to Frederick in the night. The Milanese realised straight away that perhaps they had gone too far this time, and sent the king an urn stuffed with gold coins. Frederick refused even to see the messengers, and in October of that year he entered Italy with 10,000 knights. He reached Roncaglia near Piacenza, and received the representatives of the communes, and on this occasion, Lodi reiterated their accusations against Milan. Now, Frederick didn't have the manpower for a direct attack on Milan, so he opted for the destruction of the nearby castles of Marmo, Tecate and Galliate, the latter being where your humble podcaster was born. At this point, he headed for Tortona, sworn enemy of the city of Pavia, which was another pro-imperial city. He laid siege to Tortona, which fell after about two months. At this point, Frederick Barbarossa felt that his message had been sent, the lesson learned, and that the rebellious communes of the north would quiet down and respect his authority. What say you, dear listeners? Were his calculations correct? Did this usher in a period of imperial glory? We shall see. For the moment, Milan was subdued, but holding a very nasty grudge, and still greedily eyeing the pro-imperial lardy. Now, it was time for Barbarossa to head for Rome. The news of the descent of the German king had sent the city of Rome mental. The more extreme members of the Senate wanted to actually elect a new emperor to replace Frederick. But in the end, cooler heads won out, and they decided to reach a deal with Pope Eugene III, who was allowed back into the city and officially recognized the authority of the Senate again. Now that he had established this new and happy state of affairs he considered it just about the right time to kick the bucket and so Pope Eugene III of the failed Second Crusade was no more. The very same day of his death his successor Corrado de la Suburra became Pope Anastasius IV. He tried not to rock the boat too much in any direction and he generally got along with the Senate and lasted a whole 18 months. It is at this point in history that the soggy island at the end of the known world, good old England, gave its first and only pope to the Catholic Church. Nicholas Breakspeare had been born in Abbot's Langley in Hertfordshire around the year 1100. After studying in Merton Priory and at the Abbot's School of St. Albans, he made his way to St. Rufus's in Arles, in France, and finally to Rome. There, Pope Eugene III came to like him and had made him a cardinal, and then sent him as a papal legate to Norway. Upon his return from this assignment, he was elected Pope and took the name of Hadrian IV. So, here we are in December of 1154. A new English Pope has been elected in Rome. The King of Germany and the Kingdom of Italy, Frederick Barbarossa, is on his way down to Rome to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor and, in some way, deal with the Roman Senate. In short, it really looked like Rome was the place to be for a little history-making. So that is where we'll start off next time, in Rome. But let's not forget that we have left the Milanese seething with contempt for the soon-to-be emperor. So we also need to keep an eye on that situation. As always, thanks very much To everyone for listening Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters My Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level Ed, Jeff, Joshua and Sean My Matilda Di Canossa And Mazzini level Benjamin, Maddie, Mattia Roberta, Scott and YR My Marguerite Hack And Galileo Galilei level Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby Stephen and Vincent and my tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri-Level, Sen, Paolo and Reactionary Venetian. It's been a while so I don't remember if I've given a big welcome to Jimmy C, welcome, and our newest Patreon supporter Anthony G, welcome boys to the family. We've also had another lovely review on iTunes by Madmgrrea um, Sorry for the pronunciation, but I think that's what... That seems to be the spelling anyway Perhaps if you could let me know how the pronunciation is supposed to be Forgive me for muddling that up Then, I would like to remind everyone that pretty soon, in about a month now the Storia d'Italia podcast is organising a day trip to Ravenna. And we, of a history of Italy, will be tagging along. So if you happen to be holidaying in Italy in that period, or you happen to live in the general area of Ravenna, please be sure to come along so we can have a nice day out in the old imperial capital. Also a final reminder, our podcast actually has a sponsor, a book, the K-Rock Chelsea Hotel. Which is written by me and has absolutely nothing to do with Italian history But it's a good way to support the show If you've been thinking of doing it And you want to grab a hold of a book And do some summer reading Remember that you can get in touch with us Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com You can click through to our social media, Twitter and Facebook And find timelines and maps To help you navigate our country's complicated history Until next time, thanks very much for listening again and arrivederci.
1: Who's this guy coming?
0: Oh no, it's uh, the English Pope. Alright chaps, let's hop to it, eh? Lots of poping and churching to do. Right, now, first of all, this commune business. Nasty piece of work, that. Let's have this Arnaldo da Brescia. Round it up, please. Maybe give him good hanging and, uh, why not, a little bit of burning. That'll teach the Scallywag a lesson. How are we going to do that? Can't seem to get much done here, eh? I suppose we'll have to call old Freddy up in Germany. Take a letter, please. Dear Freddy, you old bean, come on down and sort out this silly commune business. There's a good lad, best, Popey. There you are. I thought this city was supposed to be the cradle of civilization. I haven't even seen a cricket pitch, I tell you. Here you go. Maybe you you take it easy, you know? You you know, you get the people to like you. After all, you are a foreign. Foreign? I say, good sir, you are foreign. I am English.
1: Sentire media. Hey podcast producers and show hosts, do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Centitti Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy.